support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash Chris Carl Photography Podcast. Reserved number 91 specifically to talk to someone who's photographed in the NHL and it couldn't actually be any better because when I played hockey I picked the number 91 because of my favorite player that was playing at that point which was Sergei Fedorov and you happen to be the photographer for the Detroit Red Wings who obviously Fedorov had a pretty esteemed career with. Um, I guess the place that I would love to start is just how it was that you began photographing the Detroit Red Wings. Well. Uh Long story short, um, I mean, I'll make it as short as I can. I mean, I've been taking pictures since I was 11 years old and uh, played sports my whole life. And uh, it just kind of all came together in uh, the early 2000s. Actually, 2003 is when I started with the team after they won the cup in 2002. So Sergey still played with the team, um, you know, a year or so. You know, when I was playing there, uh, actually, I shot for a local publication called Michigan Hockey, uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And so I was able to photograph Sergey, your favorite player, and did get to meet him a few times. And, and um, But 2003 was uh, when I was officially hired by the team. Actually, I was put on a six-game tryout in November of 2003. And I guess it worked out. I'm still doing the job. So, yeah, kind of a dream come true for sure. Um, like I said, I've been taking pictures since I was 11 years old, kind of just as a hobby, shooting film, obviously, back in the day. Uh, got married, had kids, took pictures of the kids, you know, kind of nothing more than that. It was just a, a fun thing to do, hobby, stress reliever, whatever you want to call it. And then uh, when things went digital in the early 2000s, I bought my um, first uh, digital camera, which was the Canon D30. And uh, my life changed. Um, you know, I, you could try things, do different things. All the years I had, you know, learned the, the craft and, you know, I buy a roll of film, take some pictures, try this, try that, get the film back and realize, oh, that didn't work, throw that out. You know, so you kind of waste a lot of money trying different things. So, like right. I said, my life changed when I bought my first uh, digital camera, which was the which I still have to this day. It was a three mega, three megapixel Canon. Uh, D30 was the brand and uh, model number, I should say. So, and I've got all my cameras. Every camera I've ever used, I still I still own them. Well, let's talk about your first game. Then you obviously said you had this trial run. What was the first game like for you to 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 experience that and and to learn in in such a practical way? When I say it was my first game, my first experience was with the local publication here in Michigan called Michigan Hockey Magazine, which you can look them up on on the website. Um, they're just a small, they cover a lot of high school, a lot of youth hockey, um, college, stuff like that. And they do cover the Red Wings too, but their main focus is on, on youth sports and stuff like that. Uh, but they always have a representative down at the Red Wing games for most of the games. So I was able to, through them, get to shoot some Red Wing games and get over my anxiety of shooting pro sports and all that stuff through those guys. So when I was officially hired by the team, I guess I wasn't so overwhelmed and awestruck because I had already been in there shooting. So, but still it was exciting. Um, obviously, you know, getting the opportunity to prove myself to the team that I was worthy of, uh, the opportunity. And, um, and I, I worked really hard and 
took a lot of pride in what I did and uh, I guess it paid off because they, uh, they they liked what I did and they, they kept me on and uh, I'm still employed with them to this day. And like game to game, what's the expectations from the from the organization of you? Do you get like a brief of things that you're supposed to cover over the course of the game? Or at this point, do you just have free reign? Well, I have free reign, obviously. Um, and knowing knowing the organizations and the do's and don'ts is very important because you cross that line or step over that uh, that you know that that wall or step through that wall. You got to be careful, you know. So, but they do give me a shot list. I'll get shot lists from the NHL, um, and it's kind of a redundant request. Uh, you know, players' first games, first goals, uh, any. It's it's all basic stuff that we do anyway, but we still kind of get that that list from the NHL every game. Um, so I get that from them, and then uh, from the team. Sometimes I get stuff from them, but they know that I I kind of pay attention to what's going on. If there's something more, it's more so after the game I'll get something like if a guy hits a milestone or something, they'll just give me a heads up. Hey, meet me in the locker room after the game for. He had the picture with him with his first goal puck and his, the two guys that assisted kind of thing, or if it's a 1,000 uh, point or, um, you know, those kind of things after the game. And sometimes it's personal reasons, you know, the kid that uh, one of the players will be in there with his wife and family or his, the Swedes, for example, I'll have somebody in from out of town that doesn't come in too often. So they'll call me down and maybe get some pictures, family pictures of those guys. And it's, you know, those, everybody in the organization knows how to get a hold of me, either texting or phone number or whatever. And they, they let me know. So, um, but as far as, uh, you know, you shoot the game, um, as a photographer, I'm supposed to pretty much try and tell the story of a game. Cause what I have to do is load the images to Getty after each period, or actually I have an editor that works with me. So at the 10 minute mark, she'll come and grab my, my cards. She'll start downloading. She'll start uploading them to Getty images, which is the team has access to the images and then Getty images puts them out there for the world. Like people uh, in your side of town, you know, want to grab the images for your paper, publications, websites, whatever you need. They're up there before the period's over. Um, and so we do that at the, we do that at the 10 minute mark. She'll scoop up cards from me. She'll do it again at the end of the period. Same thing. Second period, she'll come in about the 10 minute mark and so on and so on and so on. But during that time, if there's like a, a goal, you know, she'll come grab my card at 10 minute mark. If they score a goal at the 11 minute mark and she can get to me. She'll come and grab my card. And, and get that goal up like within three, four minutes of the goal being scored. She'll have it up on the website. Amazing. I, 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 I do apologize if I ask questions that make me sound incredibly ignorant to the process of it, but I'm a big, I'm a big photography fan. I'm, I'm a big ice hockey fan. It's just, I don't really know how the process of all this works. In terms of like access, what's your access like in, in the arena during a game? Well, obviously, before all the Corona-19 stuff, I got pretty much access to everything. Um, you know, I have to, obviously, I have to be badged and have my pass on me. And, but everybody knows me down there. I've been doing it, like I say, since 2003. I'm coming up on, you know, 19 years, 18, 19 years. So I've, I've been around long enough. Everybody knows me. So, so I pretty much have access, but I still just don't assume that I can just walk around the locker room and I still run it by the team PR guy. You know, if I want to go in the locker room, if they got like a, a military night, for example, they'll have custom made jerseys and the, the, yep. the locker room shot. I'll kind of walk around inside the locker room, getting a wide view with a fisheye kind of thing of the locker room, the whole ambiance of the locker room with the, with the different jerseys. And then I'll get some close up jerseys 
shots of the jerseys and then the goalies always have, you know, custom painted helmets for those specific nights and uh, like cancer awareness night. Uh, and they always, they've usually got like a half a dozen different theme nights they have during the season. So um, yeah, there's still protocol that I need to pay attention to that I just don't assume that I can just, uh, you know, walk around carte blanche. I still talk to people, still ask if I can go in and, and they always say yes. It's just, the common respect and courtesy that you just let them know what you want to do. If I got something specific, I want to take a picture of, uh, like the equipment guy, if he's got something cool, something new, you know, I go talk to Paul Boyer and, uh, you know, he'll, he'll let me, uh, or he'll, or he'll give me a heads up on something that's coming out. He might want some pictures of. So access is pretty much everywhere I want to go, providing I do it the right way. And do you travel with the team or are you tied to the arena, so to speak? Uh, when we won the cup in 2008, I did. Um, it, not necessarily the first couple rounds, but uh, the last last few rounds, uh, the semifinals and uh, the finals, I did. And um, I don't travel with them as much now as I used to. Um, our social media people kind of handle all the on the road stuff. Social media has really kind of taken over a lot of the stuff. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say they've taken work from me. It's just we're we're all a team. And we all share responsibilities, and I'm fine with that. Um, the traveling can be overrated, I guess, at, to a point, especially if you have a family. Because you are on, they tra- they tra- at, uh, 82 games out of the year, they're traveling 41 of them. So it's a, there's a lot of travel these guys do, and they go those long West Road trips, long Northern Canada trips. Um, so so the social media people uh, take care of most of the road, road stuff with the video and uh, Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that. Um, but if we... Hopefully we do again before I'm all done with this. We make another good run at the Stanley Cup. Uh, I'm assuming I'll probably, if we make it to the finals, I'll travel with them. I mean, well, growing up in, in England, we didn't have um, a lot of access to ice hockey, generally speaking, especially not the NHL. But uh, you were able to watch it late night on a Wednesday night on a terrestrial TV channel. And although I have to say for the sake of being completely um, honest here, I am a Toronto Maple Leaf fan. I do remember because I'm of sorry. the... <laughs> because of the... Uh, I'll just pretend that I'll pretend that I'm not feeling sad about anything. Um, because of the time <laughs> slot that we had in England, it was almost always an, an Eastern Conference game, and inevitably it was a Red Wings game because they were so much fun to watch at the time. And I remember growing up watching uh, Federov, as I've already mentioned, but like Eisenman, Hull, Shanahan, Hashik, Lidstrom. I remember Datsuk coming through. I remember Zetterberg coming through. Um, but you've actually photographed someone that's even like echelons above them, which is crazy. But you, you photographed Gordie Howe. What was that experience like? It was uh, surreal, I guess, to be honest. It was, uh, you know, I had met Gordie as a little kid growing up. Gordie was always out and about town. So I, he, you know, I, he, I'm sure he didn't know who I was. But once I hired him with the organization, I got to see him more often, obviously, because he was always down at the Red Wing game. And his son, um, Mark Howe, was a scout and has been involved with the Red Wings, you know, ever since he retired from Philadelphia. He's been involved with the Red Wing organization. And then the Illiches, God bless them, they they really reached out to all the alumni. Uh, For some reason, they just kind of, the alumni weren't treated with the respect they deserve. And the Illiches had reached out to Gordy and brought him back into their graces because he wasn't, wasn't a happy camper. He left the organization and went to went to Hartford. So the others just reached out to him, brought him back into the organization, gave him the respect he deserved, and kind of was an ambassador for the Red Wings. And he relished in it. He was always down there. He did a lot of public appearances, a lot of a lot of concourse uh, autograph sessions to get fans to come down. And so I got to meet Gordy a lot 
um, back in the day. And um, so one of it was early on, it was, I think it was 2005, 2006. It was coming up on his sixth year anniversary with the Red Wings, not necessarily a full 60 years, but uh, obviously there was some time off there, but they wanted to honor it and they wanted to do a, a night um, to honor his 60 years in the NHL. And they gave me a theme called uh, reminiscing. And I'm thinking as a photographer, what do I do to make Gordy act like he's daydreaming? Mind you, I mean, this guy's a legend of all legends of hockey. And, um, and so I went down the night before and I kind of came up with a theme. And Joe Lewis, the ceiling was like royal blue. It was a really vivid, vivid blue, which is a sharp contrast to the bright red jerseys that they had. So up in the Raptors, they had the banners of, um, you know, Iserman, Gordy, uh, all the, you know, Lin- Lindsay, Abel. How they had all the banners up there hanging. So I went up there. I hung one of my strobes to illuminate the banners specifically, and then I had him down on the bench, just kind of stare off into space. And he was leaning on the dashboard, and and uh, it worked out great. So when he came down, he as gracious and humble as he was. So I introduced myself. Hi, I'm Dave Regenic, and uh, we're going to do this photo shoot. He goes, "Great. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go?" And it was just so easy to work with. It was just. And I'm shaking in my boots. I'm thinking, this is Gordy Howe. I better not screw up or not be organized. I better, have, I better have this right. So I went down the night before I did all that stuff, set it up. I actually borrowed one of the security guards for a minute to kind of stand in, kind of make sure that I had my exposures all set. And I basically left everything down there. The team was on the road, so I didn't have to worry about anything. And uh, and they on non-game days, they, the arena is really dimly lit. So it worked out really well. I've got it on my Instagram. If anybody cares to go take a look at it, um, at, at D organic on Instagram, but, um, cheap plug there. But, um, anyway, so we did the photo shoot. I got the shot done in about, I don't know, uh, 12, 16 shots. I knew I got the shot, you know, I would digitally look at the back of your camera right away. And I know I nailed it. And, um, so I'm thinking this is great. And he's like, that, that it. I said, yeah, I think we're all good. So they had the Joe Lewis scoreboard hanging down about chest high. They were doing some maintenance inside and changing bulbs, whatever they were doing. He goes, let's let's go to center ice and take a picture by the scoreboard. Because on the bottom corner, there was a big Red Wing logo on there. It's like, oh, okay. So he hops on the ice and starts slip sliding across the ice over to this thing. And I'm freaking out. I'm thinking if he slips and falls, <laughs> I'm going to be done. They're going to walk me out of the building. So I stood, I walked with him across the ice really close because if he fell, I was diving underneath him. I wasn't going to let him get hurt. But he slid across the ice. We did a few more pictures and, you know, we were done. But uh, it was great because after that, he remembered me. I would be down doing whatever I'm doing down there and and he would kind of come in and he was great for sneaking up on people. He would sneak up and all of a sudden I'm getting an elbow in the side of my head. And it's like, what? Who, what? It's Gordy giving me the old Gordy elbow on the side of his head. That was, And when he took pictures with people, that was kind of his signature. He'd always put his elbow up in people's faces because that's kind of what he was known for when he played. It was that invisible elbow that he would take people out with and never get called on. So, yeah, yeah it was a, a one of my memorable photo um, shoots uh, of any of the Red Wings I've ever done was with him for sure because he was such a legend. And on a side note, um, you know, the, the family asked me to, the, the organization and the family asked me to um, to document his uh, funeral. That was hard. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it was real hard. 
especially since I knew him. That was, as a photographer, I think that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Right. So I went up to Mark Howe and I told him how uncomfortable I was with it. And he said, uh, he says, you've always been respectful to the, to the family. He says, we trust you. And uh, I did it. It was hard, but I did it. I mean, it's it's an incredible thing that you did, and uh, what an incredible person to to be able to say that he knew you and that you knew him, and you have that experience together. Yeah, it's it's priceless. A hundred percent, completely. Um, let, let's let's move on to some more memorable um things before we uh, go back to me being a complete novice with understanding how you do what you do. Um, in terms of games that you've you've documented, um, I've, I've seen that you've documented the outdoor games, which is on my bucket list is actually to come over to America and and see an outdoor game live. Um, but what are the most memorable games that you photographed? Well, obviously the Stanley Cup that's got a rate right up there um, just because it was, you know, they they were gracious enough, the organization, to give me a, a Stanley Cup ring too. And it's got 70-something diamonds on it. Uh, got my name on it. I mean, it's just amazing. Way cool. Wow. It's just, it's, yeah, wow. It's, uh, to, yeah, it's... it's uh, it, anyway, so Stanley Cup was... Uh, that whole experience and then to do it again in the very next year, the 2008-2009 season and not win it against Pittsburgh. Um, so the highs and lows. So I guess I got to experience the high before the low. But um, Stanley Cup games were, were up there. And, you know, the, I think I'd have to say one of the second best experience I've had other than the Stanley Cup. And there's a lot of great games, a lot of cool things that have happened over the years. Um, but was that game in Calumet that we did last year last uh, September, I think it was, late September before the, it was our last preseason game before the season started. And um, the people up at Calumet, now if you're not familiar with Michigan, we got like the hand and then the upper peninsula kind of looks like the rabbit. And it, it's a, Calumet is almost as far north as you can go uh, in Michigan. There's actually a place called Copper Harbor, which is about another, I don't know, 45 minute drive north of that. But I mean, Calumet is about as hockey as you can get. Those people, it's such a small little town. I think the population of Calumet specific downtown was like a, a under 800. So it's a very small town. The Coliseum that we played in was built in the late 1800s. They say it's the oldest rink in North America. And it just oozes hockey. It just, and me being a hockey guy, I played it my whole life, still play. And uh, just going up there and experience the culture, the people, they were so nice. It was, it was, it, it changed people's life up there. And so I, I had to get up there early and the NHL hired me to follow the Stanley Cup around. So we got to take the Stanley Cup to a nursing home. We took it to this family's house that um, the dad was like the Scotty Bowman of Calumet hockey. He had been around forever, coached kids that had made it to the NHL and just the history of the family and the, the hockey from Calumet. We got to, so we, we come down the street with the cupkeeper and everybody and, and we we sneak up to their house on their front porch some of the family members knew but it was going to be a big surprise for most of them so it was kind of like a, a family reunion thing so we set the stanley cup on their porch and knock and then we took off so they they come answer the door and the stanley cup is sitting on the porch so i was like hiding wow. in the bushes snapping pictures yeah and these people to see their face crying and it was it was just 
one of those experiences to be a fly on the wall and experience it. It was just so special. It's just so cool. That was just one of the things we did. But I spent like eight, 10 hours um, going around, taking it to different cool places. That was just amazing. So that, that, that Cali Met uh, game we played, I think that was called the uh, Craft Hockey Bill. Yeah, it was Craft Hockey Bill. Yep. Amazing. Great experience. And yeah, I'm sure you, you can YouTube it. And if you haven't seen it, you can watch it. It's the, the rink is just, I think the rink held like 800 people. That's all it held. And they, did, and they had to do a lottery for the tickets up there. And there was, there was more people outside and they had a big screen TV outside to watch it. And it was an event of all events. I think it was probably the biggest thing that's ever happened in Calumet's town. And just to experience that, be a fly out of and take pictures and document it. It was so cool. What an incredible experience. And then uh, it, it obviously highlight, it highlights something that I think um, people really underestimate. And, and like I say, ice hockey in the UK isn't really a thing, but I'm a big fan of all American sports and, and quite a lot of different sports from across the, across the world. But specifically hockey has such a community feel to it. And there's so much about the, the, the hockey community in Canada, the hockey community in America, and even the people over in Europe that are, that are fans or that are playing. It, it's really a, a, a fantastic community of people that it kind of just breaks down so many different social issues and just, you just go out and you play hockey and you can be fans of hockey. And I don't think it has the same, like I find uh, soccer football in, in England has quite a spiteful nature in the way that the fans conduct themselves towards each other. Whereas I've been in, I've been in Canada watching Tampa Bay beat Montreal in the playoffs and I'm having a chat with a Tampa Bay fan on one side and a Montreal fan on the other side and everyone's, you know, maybe not having as much fun as each other, but everyone's courteous and they're just fans of the sport first and foremost. I think that's the the thing I love most about ice hockey. Yeah, you touched on a very good point and I have to agree with you 100%. Um, I've played it my whole life. Um, coached it for 13 years. This is my kids. Uh, you know, I got him on skates when he was three years old. My daughter played. Um, it, it is. It's. It's. You know, I'm, I'm still close with a lot of the kids that I coach. You know, been to their weddings, watch them have kids. Uh, it's. You, you just. You build a, a lifelong bond, and um, it's. It's something special. And I. I agree. I mean, you, there's always the friendly banter. You know, especially like when uh, we play Toronto or we play Montreal. Especially since Detroit's not doing so well right now. I mean, when we play those teams, they come over here and they buy up the tickets and they come and have fun. And it's a you know, the let's go Red Wings, let's go Leafs things that you have a hard time discerning who's saying what. It's so loud. So the yeah. atmosphere is always electric and fun. Um, and like I say, there's not you don't get too many fights or stupid things breaking out in the stands though it has happened to that some won't take it over the border it's a little bit too much the intensity but for the most part you're dead on right it's uh it's a it's a community sport it's the love of the sport the, the competition at the end of the day it's uh it's sports you know and it's uh, it's it's that's all it is it's sports and it's meant to have fun and take your mind off of bad things uh, like all the stuff we got going on right now and i'm uh i'm actually I'm curious how this, how this is going to play out with these upcoming um, round robin games. This playoff starting August first. I'm. I, I just read this morning. Uh, one of the players from Calgary decided to back out and not play. He's the first one in the NHL to say uh, Travis Kromanek or I, I don't get his name's Travis something or other, but he plays for Calgary and he told his team he's not going to play. I guess his daughter uh, last year. Uh, 
to early this year, she had a, uh, a respiratory virus and she was like, uh, almost didn't make it. And because of that and the ch- that chance that he could possibly be a, uh, you know, catch it and not even know it and bring it home, it could take his daughter out. And he said he's not going to play this year. So those are little things that are ha- popping up right now. And uh, these guys all got to make these decisions real quick here because their camps are starting up. Uh, tomorrow, actually July 13th, all these camps start up to start playing. So it's going to be interesting to see how this goes, especially with these guys being off. They're going to give them a three week, uh, two and a half week camp to kind of get their legs back and their timing down. It's, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a fascinating end to a, to a very bizarre season. You got it. Let's talk about your gear. Normally, I don't like to talk about photographic gear on the podcast because for the most part, it just it devolves into people sort of defending brands. But I actually don't know what you would bring with you to photograph an NHL game. I'm assuming you've already mentioned the fisheye lens, but what other gear are you carrying with you on the day? Oh, my. I got, oh, I bring three to four cameras, three cameras all the time, four, uh, you know, if I'm doing... Uh, some more remote access. So I'll mount cameras in the Raptors up in the ceiling. I'll mount cameras in the dashboards. Um, I always carry two cameras on me as I'm shooting. I usually shoot with a, uh, a long lens and then I'll shoot with a short lens. And then, um, and then a lot of times, um, I shoot on strobes too, just to kind of clarify how I shoot. Uh, I don't shoot available light, which I can shoot available light. The lighting at the new Little Caesars Arena is absolutely amazing. But strobe photography, it's there's an art in that in itself because the timing is more important. Whereas uh, available light, you know, a guy skating in on net for a play, you just got to lay on the button. My camera shoot 12 and 14 frames a second. And I can right. shoot for... 60, 70 frames at a pop before I've got to worry about, you know, the camera buffering and catching up. But shooting strobes, you've got to time it. Yeah, I got to, when I snap a picture, I got to give it that like one Mississippi, two Mississippi snap. Like it's about a second and a half, two seconds in between images that I can take a picture because the, the strobes have to recycle. They have to recharge themselves to give it the, the flash bulbs up there enough time to recharge to give it a full shot of light. So, uh, I shoot strobes. I've got two sets of lights up there. So my main set, um, I shoot predominantly all during the game. And then I'll have another light on, uh, like behind me, just one light all by itself that really creates an old school look. It's, um, if you look at some of the old pictures back in the 40s and 50s where these guys had this, like, I don't know what kind of lights they had back there to make a flash, but I, it might have been a little tray of powder. Who knows? Someone lighted it with a match. <laughs> That these guys, if you go back, you can go to Getty Images. Uh, you can see all my images up on Getty Images. You just, you just uh, got to type in my name in the search engine and you'll see. Um, but if you go back and just search old hockey pictures, you'll see how they lit these things up back in the day. And it's more of a paying homage to the old photographers, the pioneers in the day that, that created that look. And I just so love it. So I try to, in my own way, do it in, in my style and, um, you know, do the one light thing. And it really makes a great look. Uh, I, I kind of learned that technique from a, a mentor of mine, uh, Mark Hicks. He, uh, he was the Red Wing photographer for 16, 18 years before me. And um, he, he, I, I was able to work with him for a few years and just kind of just help him out and uh, work some gigs with him, some hockey tournaments and stuff like that. He gave me a lot of great pointers and I'll forever be grateful for uh, 
experience and uh, the techniques that he shared with me along the way. So I kind of learned that one light technique from him um, and then, you know, researched it more from there. But um, so the mounting, mounting cameras before games, I usually get there all my probably if it's a 7.30 game, I'm usually there anywhere between 1.30, 2.30. You know, you got to get up, you got to mount your cameras, you got to do your test shots, you got to make sure your remotes all have uh, good batteries in them, you got to make all your, your wirings all synced up properly. There's just so much you got to do. And then at the end of the game, you got to break it all down. So it's uh, it's a long day. Uh, it's almost a 12 hour day, sometimes uh, 11, 12 hour day for every game. But, but what you get when you get the images, like the dashboard uh, images are. For, where we've got a piece of glass mounted just above the ice surface, just above the yellow um, piece of plastic around the base of the ice. It's like a, a six, eight inch piece of yellow that goes around the bottom. And I, I've got a piece of glass mounted in the, in the boards there. Uh, I think the bottom of my glass is about 10 inches, I think it is. So you put a wide angle lens on there and you're taking pictures of their ankles looking up. And you obviously use a wide lens to get that kind of stuff. And, and when you get those pictures, it's just spectacular. It's just, you walk away just pumping your arm going, yes, it was so <laughs> worth it. But so many times, you like, like when I'll do a net cam, I'll mount a camera in the net. And that's such a crapshoot. With any remote camera, it's a crapshoot because it's all a timing thing. You know, I'm, I'm shooting in my position and I'll, try and mount my cameras down at the other end of the ice, my net cam, my dasher cam, any other cameras that I, I want to hit the button on. I try and do it at the opposite end just because I'm shooting with my handhelds at my end. When the action goes all the way down the other end of the ice, it's kind of hard to shoot with a handheld all the way down the ice. You can with, if you've got the right lens. So I try to use my remotes at the other end of the ice and just watch the play. If there's a play in front of my dasher cam, I'll hit the button. If there's a play going into the net. If i got my net cam, I'll hit, I'll hit the button. And it's basically just a, a, a plunger button at my end hooked to a transmitter, which sends a signal all the way down the ice to a receiver, which in turn triggers my cameras. And sometimes I'll have multiple cameras going on the same button. So you'll get the same look from two or three different angles. So there's a whole lot of whole lot of thought and prep and and setup to make these images work. But um, and I believe me, I'm not the pioneer of the stuff. It's, I've just learned from other great guys, you know, Bruce Bennett. Uh, and Shep, you know, I don't know, five, 6,000 games already. He's probably, a, he, is a, he is a legend in sports photography for sure. He's uh, the main guy for Getty Images and uh, um, he he does remote stuff all the time and he's, he's very creative and, and, and mouse cameras where you'd never think a camera could be mounted. He finds a way to do it. And he did it back in the day with film cameras where the camera was exposed to the action. He would mount the camera in the middle of the vertical pipe in the back of the net and you'd see a raw camera sitting in there. But NHL operations and injuries and stuff like that, they've, they've set regulations up for mounting cameras. You have to get approval by them if you're going to mount cameras and stuff like that. And, uh, so, there's a, there's a whole process. You got to get the goalies to sign off on it. You got to get the team's general manager to sign off on it, which they always do. I've never had one say, no, you can't do it, or a quirky goalie say, no, I don't want a net cam in tonight. But it's just the protocol. You have to go through the NHL to get all that stuff done. And they have to, you have to have it turned in 48 hours before the game. And, and they have to approve it. You have to have a printed copy into the referee's room so they know it's approved net cam installation. So it's there's a whole lot to it. People don't understand the amount of work it takes to make a good picture. They just think, oh, you just, you know, carry a camera down to the game and snap away and right. get lucky, get lucky. 
you're talking about something that's pretty much bang on where I want to go with this. Um, I don't, I've never photographed ice hockey, although I'm a big ice hockey fan. I could, I could pretty much predict the, the run of play and, and to an extent understand how things are going to turn out in a very, very obtuse way. I wouldn't be able to have it as much finesse with it, obviously, as someone as, as seasoned as yourself, but photographing it on top of that would be an entirely different thing in terms of, like you mentioned, timing and things like that. How much does your understanding of hockey itself and your understanding of, of photography coincide to end up with you getting the shots that you want? Because it's not just a case of knowing your camera, is it? It's a case of really knowing the sport. Well, I, some of that's true and some of it, I, you know, I've been proven wrong from other photographers. Uh, one of the good friends of mine here in Detroit, Michigan, uh, Dave Goralnik, who shoots for the Detroit News, who I do some freelance work for the Detroit News also, great people there, great publication. Um, Dave Goralnik uh, is from San Francisco, never knew much about hockey growing up. He moved to Detroit to get the photography job. And he ended up being the guy to cover the Detroit Red Wings. I don't think he can even stand up on skates, but he is an amazing <laughs> photographer, an absolute amazing photographer. He's just a great photographer in general. I mean, he knows uh, he can he can take a picture of a bug in water and find a unique way to to really make it look cool. But he's just a good photographer. But he he's taken some amazing hockey pictures and. Uh, Another guy from the Detroit Free Press, uh, Julian Gonzalez, who has since retired, another amazing, phenomenal, was many awards uh, photographer. Um, so, I mean, I play, I play the game. I think, I think it, it helps me personally. Um, you know, and I, I, I kind of also try and study the players. You know, you know, if a, if a player has a problem with another player, um, you know, like Mark right. Hicks, for example, he shot the uh, Lemieux McCarty fight picture, which is the, the iconic picture from Detroit and Colorado back in 96, I think it was, uh, right. March of 90, uh, 97, it was March of 97. It was the 96-97 season, but it was March of 97 when he should have took that picture. Um, and it, it, uh, I could be wrong, don't quote me on that. But uh, anyway, he that as a photographer, you would love to catch one of those pictures. So it was an easy kind of picture to take. He was in the right spot at the right time, saw it coming, kind of knew what was going on. And he nailed that picture, and it's just it, everybody's seen it. Darren McCarty's on top of Mark, uh, Claude Lemieux as he's covering his face turtly on the edge with McCarty's arm cocked, ready to just drill him. And he, he did beat his butt that day. But uh, so you know, understanding the players and the emotions and uh, the rivalries, you know that there's going to be exciting moments during the game. Uh, you can kind of anticipate those and kind of plan for those kind of shots. So I think knowing the sport. Knowing the team, knowing the players helps. Um, but any good photographer, whether you play the game or you don't play the game, I think if they do their homework, um, you'll, you know, you're gonna you're gonna set yourself up for the opportunity to get a good picture. Absolutely. You've also photographed the basketball, correct? Yes, I do uh, freelance work for Getty Images. I shoot uh, some basketball, some hockey, or some uh, football, um, baseball. Yep, I get to I get to cover all the sports here. In particular with basketball, having been to a few NBA games now, one thing that is obviously massively different between um, hockey and basketball is the frequency of scoring. And is it harder to predict a, a, a significant moment in basketball because there's so many points being scored? Well, there, it all kind of, like I said, it circles back to your preparation. You know, if you study the game, you know, study the players, 
know if there's a player coming up on a milestone, that's really important. And I'll, I'll tell you a really good story about not being prepared and not doing my homework and, and getting my most iconic shot. But, uh, but every sport has its nuances. And, and like I said, if you do your homework and, and if you know that there's a milestone coming up, um, sometimes you can catch it in the pregame press releases. When you come to the games, you pick up the rosters. Um, you, you know, you read the pregame notes that are put out by the teams, both teams, and uh, you can pick up some stuff from that. Um, but shooting each sport, you know, the, the timing thing again, and, and, and you do have a lot of good opportunities in basketball to get good shots because you know that they're driving to the net. You know there's going to be a lot of jumping, a lot of banging, a lot of fighting for the basketball, a lot of sweat flying. And the other thing, shooting basketball, is you got to worry about getting taken out because you're shooting right there at the baseline. And these guys, when they're going full tilt, they can't stop on a dime. And they'll either look, jump over you, step on you, kick you, get a knee in the face. I've been lucky. I've had a couple close calls, but I haven't been I haven't been taken out. Though I know a lot of photographers that have been completely blasted. Um, so, but like like the the famous video of um, Dennis Rodman where he slid down and ended up kicking the cameraman that was next to him um, when he was yeah. in the pools. Yeah, it's it's a pretty scary environment. I've got to think it is, and you have to sign off and all that stuff. If you get you get whacked, you, you know it's uh, part of the job. I've been I've been stitched up, knocked out um, from shooting hockey. You know a number of times. Um, I had a stick come through my photo hall and hit me right in the side of, in my temple and knocked me out cold. And I thought it was a puck till I got home and saw the replay on TV. And man, it, it was a stick had come through. So I, it was a uh, Froelich from Chicago when he played for Chicago and Fapula when he was with Detroit the first go. So I got, you know, two original six teams and I got both these guys battling for position coming straight at me. I'm thinking, bam. So I snail a good, good frame of, you know, Chicago, Detroit, the logos are iconic. They're amazing jersey colors coming at me. So right after I snapped a picture, Fakula lifted up his stick, and, and Frolic's stick comes perfectly through that photo hole and just hit me in the side of the head. Knocked my camera out of my hand, broke my $300 transmitter off the top of my camera, which triggers my flashes. Camera hits the floor. I get knocked off my, my stool. People all around are just like, what just happened? They, they were still <laughs> scared I really got hurt. Security comes running down. You know they wanted to take me away and get checked out, and uh, you know I had to sign a waiver right there. No, I'm good. I've been hit harder than this when I played hockey. I said I'm good. I still put my all together here. So, yeah, it's a, it can be dangerous at times for sure. So you you have to kind of keep your head on a swivel, especially like when I shoot between the benches. And when you shoot between the benches at Joe Lewis, you're you're right there. I've been hit with pucks there and sticks, and had to get stitched up and. Uh, yeah, so you have to you have to not only watch the game, you got to watch behind the play and you know line changes sometimes. Guys will make line changes and they'll stick will fly into my spot. Uh, so it's it's a, it can be dangerous at times, but you have to be have, have to be ready for that stuff. I mean, just to bring up, uh, to t- to take this in a different direction very quickly, and and we'll we'll wrap up soon because uh, I don't want to take t- take up too much of your time, but I really do appreciate um, you talking with us. Celine Dion, Tall, Garth Brooks, Carrie Underwood, Queen, and a particular favorite of mine, uh, Joe Bonamassa. You've you photographed some absolute legends of music as well. What's the prep like in terms of doing music photography, and and how much different is it for you in terms of like, are you more relaxed with music, or are you more tense? You know, which one do you prefer? Uh, shooting concerts, I'll tell you. Uh, I, I've been taking pictures, um, gosh, since high school. That was probably one of my 
driving forces for photography as I got older was shooting rock concerts. Because back in the 70s, uh, you know, when I, I graduated high school in 77, and me and my buddies, uh, two other buddies of mine, uh, Bob and Ken, we used to, you know, we used to always go to concerts. And back in the day, you could take cameras in and they didn't bust your chops like they do now. Now, shooting concerts, you get one or two songs, sometimes three. Um, sometimes they let you shoot in the pit down low, which is the best spot to shoot from something like more. So nowadays they're making you shoot from the soundboard, which is, you know, middle, uh, main floor. So you got to bring a big lens in there and it's shooting concerts is a real, it's not as fun as it used to be. I still enjoy shooting concerts because of the drama, the lighting, the theatrics. I still love it, but it's a real job to go shoot a concert anymore. Just because of, uh, and, and I've met Garth Brooks before, but his show, they, they they wouldn't even let us face the stage until he came on stage. I mean, we, I, we couldn't even point our, and this is where the lights are on, and I just don't get that. You know, it's like it's like espionage, like we're going to take a picture of uh, something during their setup of their stage that's going to, I don't get it. I have no, I never get it. I'm not going to try and get it, but um, <laughs> yeah, she Shooting concerts is very difficult anymore, uh, and then and then it's like a it's like a you're competing with other photographers, especially if you're getting in the pit. You know, you get down there, you get three two three songs to shoot, and you're you're trying to get the best spot. There's some pretty aggressive guys that, uh, that, that you know they've been around a little bit longer, and they feel they're entitled to have the best spot. Well, it's first come first serve is the way it works, and that's how the attitude I go when I get in there. I try to I try to make sure I'm there early enough and get to that spot before anybody else. So it's very challenging. It's uh it, it it's uh I like it from the challenging standpoint because you only get a tiny little window to create good images, but. Uh, Obviously, you're not shooting strobes when you're shooting a concert. You're shooting available light, but the available light is so cool and so colorful, and, and you're just blasting away. I'll shoot, I'll shoot 40, 50 gigabytes worth of images and two or three songs. You know, so it's uh, it's a lot of fun that way. But um, real quick, though, one of the story I want to get to before I uh, we, we end up here was um, one of my most iconic shots was a baseball game. You know, and hockey is pretty much what I've shot my, most of my my uh, professional career was was uh, hockey. So I'm shooting a Detroit Tiger baseball game um, against the Minnesota Twins, and this is when Jim Tome played for the uh, Minnesota Twins, and he is one of eight guys in Major League Baseball history to to uh, hit 600 home runs. So I was just still doing my day job at the time. I hadn't retired yet, so I got stuck at work late. I knew I had to get to the baseball game, so I got to the baseball game late. Didn't really have a chance to do my homework. Didn't realize that he was at 598 before the game started. So there was an opportunity for him to hit 600 if he hits two home runs. Well, sure enough, he hit fifth, you know, 599 earlier in the game. You know, I got that. You know, got that pitcher, which is okay, cool. Anytime you get a home run pitcher, is always cool. You get them you know, high fiving guys as they're coming back into the dugout, high fiving the third base coach, whatever, making the, the little glory trot around the bases and stuff like that. Well, um, later in the game, there was I was shooting on the visiting team side, which is I'm looking down from home plate to third base. It's a perfect line, straight down th third base line from home plate. So there's a play at home plate. And well, for whatever reason, if it was me, my lens, my camera, a bug, I don't know what it was, but my lens was not, my autofocus on my lens wasn't tracking the play. And there was a big collision at home plate. Big collision. These two guys hit like two trains. And their bodies are flying in the air, spinning around, dirt flying. 
helmets flying, and I got nothing but out of focus pitchers. The best pitcher I got of that whole sequence was the catcher tagged him out and was able to hold the ball. And you know, on his knees, dust on dirt all over. He's holding the ball up in there, and I was just so pissed off. I was like, I'm ready to go home. So I'm thinking I'm going to switch spots. So I ended up going down to the third base side on the home team side. So now I'm looking down uh, from third base to second base. So now my view from that point, looking at home plate, was uh, Jim Tone comes up and he's a left-handed sw- uh, swinger. So now I've got, I'm looking right at Jim. That's a perfect spot to be for the photographers to be on the third base side shooting at home plate, home team side shooting at home plate on a left-handed swinger. Well, sure enough, I, I made it to that spot and um, for whatever reason, I think I was doing some editing. I saw that he was up and they're ready to throw a pitch. So I grabbed my 300 millimeter and I put it up there. The first frame I got it. I nailed it. He hit his 600 <laughs> home run. And I didn't realize that this was a milestone. This is history. Like I said, when Barry Bonds did it, I mean, there were probably a million media people there covering it because they knew that there's a good chance he was at 599 for that. I don't know, he was at 599 for a few games. They knew it was going to happen sooner or later. So they followed him around for how many games it was going to take for him to get that 600. It was a media circus. Same was when uh, I think Aurelio Rodriguez did it or uh, A-Rod, whatever. I think he did it too. So, so he's. I'm thinking, why is why is everybody in the stands cheering? So the, the, the in baseball fans, they realized it was a milestone. Everybody in this Detroit was cheering for the opposite team's home run, which I thought was odd. So I started snapping more pictures, snap more pictures, and you know, and then I realized, you know, Tommy's my homie, and people holding the, the signs up were so funny. They were all ready for it, and uh, that was probably my biggest pitcher. You know, six hundred home run of uh, eight guys in Major League Baseball. You know, the quickest one to do it, uh, other than him, was Babe Ruth. He did it. He was the second fastest guy to hit six hundred home runs. Wow, I mean that's it's it's awesome that you got the picture, but also kind of crazy with the with the fact that you didn't see it coming, but you still managed to grab it. Um, I think that's probably testament to your alertness and your probably your enthusiasm as well, because I think. People become a lot less alert when they're a lot less enthused by something. Um, let me ask you one more question before um, we round up. And again, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, and this has been a little bit of a personal episode for me because um, I'm such a huge fan of ice hockey. I'm such a huge fan of American sports and your work is obviously fantastic. Which player in, in game, and it could be any sport that you want to you wanna go to, but which player were you most excited to photograph before you photographed them? Was there that anticipation? for you to actually photograph? I'd have to say Pavel Datsuk. Pavel, Pavel is such a unique player. Um, you know, Eisenman's up there too, you know, just because I have the respect and the battle where that guy was and the stuff he had to endure before we won the cop. But as far as an action player and, and unpredictable and the things that that guy could do, oh my God, I think Pavel Datsuk is head and shoulders probably the most unique player to ever strap on a pair of skates. The stuff that he has done and the highlight reels that he has done over the years. And and it's to see the chemistry like with him and Henrik Zetterberg that they had together. Yeah. Those two guys were on the ice. They were clairvoyant. They had eyes in the back of their heads. Those guys would put pucks where they were going to end up, not where they're at. I mean, they just knew each other so well. It was so exciting and I'm so honored to have got to experience pretty much both of their careers from start to finish. You know, they were rookies when I started with the team and now, now they're both double panel. I think still playing in Russia. Yeah. I remember, I remember watching, um, 
I watched live when Red Wings played Nashville Predators and Datsu got leveled by Weber and he got up, dusted himself off, skated round, did a little circuit, grabbed a puck, drew Weber into the corner and then just flattened Weber with a counter check. And I just, I thought yeah. it was such a, like of all of the stuff that he does, cause he is seriously magic as a player. like had just the, the most amazing hands, but the fact that he had the wherewithal to like get one back and give a receipt to Weber, I just thought it was so cool. He's, he's definitely, I agree with you, probably one of the most unique players to ever play in the NHL. Yeah. The, the Russians, the Russians specifically, they, they don't come any tougher than those guys. Uh, it's just, I think it's just the, the way they're raised, the, the, their culture, uh, um, you know, it's, I'm sure he wasn't raised in the best of the house and, you know, wasn't raised by a wealthy family and those right. Russians pay their dues and their, their appreciation and their pride, not being soft players, you know, you won't see a Russian that's a big fighter, but boy, you won't find him any tougher. If Pavel ever laid on the ice, you knew he was hurt. That guy, right. he, would, he would he would skate off the ice after being just smoked. I mean, like you said, that play, I don't know exactly which play you're talking about. He got leveled, but he got up, shook it off, stayed in the play, and he was great. Dino Cicerelli used to do that same kind of thing. Dino would kind of call you into a corner, and then just when the player coming to check him thought that he had him lined up, Dino would give him a shoulder before the guy had a chance to dip his shoulder into him and level him. And Pebble did that to perfection. Pebble would catch guys, he would lull them to think that they, he didn't see them coming and then just drop them. Just knock their yep. gloves right off their hands. It's been amazing to talk to you. I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, you did it a little bit earlier, but I want to give you a proper opportunity now to tell everyone where they can go to see your fantastic work. Well, I appreciate it. It's been great talking to you too, Chris. I look forward to uh, listening to more of your, your podcasts. Uh, um, I, I'm not a big social media guy. I, I, I do a little bit with my family and a, a lot of it for sports, just as a lot of people like to, to follow the stuff. And I've been doing something here re- re- recently, which I kind of have laid off here kind of last month. I've been, you know, got family things going with my mom and my son. Uh, we bought a new house, so it's kind of a handyman, so I've been doing a lot of that. But uh, during this coronavirus thing, I've been posting pictures on my Instagram at D-Regenic, D-R-E-G-I-N-E-K, um, and then my Facebook, Dave Regenic. Um, but uh, my Instagram, I've been posting pictures. I was doing it like every day, just posting a picture, telling a story about it. And obviously uh, you saw the one on Gordy and, you know, it's not so much the picture, it's the story behind the picture that I've kind of been um, telling people about, which kind of makes the picture a little more interesting when you know what goes on behind the picture. So I've got some pretty good stuff there. I think it's uh, interesting stuff anyways. I'm going to get back at it here. I've got a lot more stuff to post. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And thank you for being number 91 on my podcast list. It, it really does mean a lot. Ready on, right on, Chris. I really appreciate you having me on, man. It's an honor.
Sing 